Epigenetics Podcast Episode 17. Welcome to the 17th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan and I'm part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guests for these episodes are Tom Matula and Kara Bomstick from Matchsticks Technology. And I'm happy to talk to you now. Thank you guys for joining me today. Um, please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. Uh, Tom, you are a physicist and got your PhD from Washington State University in 1993. You then went on to the University of Washington as a research scientist and became director of the Center of Industrial and Mechanical Ultrasound in 2007 and the director of the Center of Ultrasound-Based Molecular Imaging and Therapy. And you are still there today. Carol, you did... Carol, you did your medical education at the University of Rochester and then you went on to Yale University School of Medicine and were a resident at the Yale New Haven Hospital. In 83, you then became professor of medicine at the University of Washington, where you are also still today. So a question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in science in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Um, Carol, maybe you can answer this first. Sure. So when I was a kid, I read a, a book about Michael Faraday and became fascinated with electricity, fixing and building electrical gadgets. In college, I majored in physics and mathematics. At that time, medical schools were very interested in encouraging uh, uh, physics and math majors and engineering uh, folks to pursue a medical education. And that was sort of the mantra of uh, University of Rochester. And um, uh, because the idea was uh, folks in hard sciences would then go on to become physician scientists and technology developers. So throughout my medical education and training, I continued to build gadgets and perhaps my biggest contribution to Yale was during my medical training, they gave me a week off to build a solid state system to run a quiz ball uh, at Yale. And I was told that the system lasted for, uh, for 20 years. This is quite impressive. So mm -hmm. you were not in the first place set out to, to be a medical doctor, but You somehow started out and find, found your way uh, in turns and quirks, right? Correct. Uh, I, was a, I was a tinkerer way before I went uh, to medical school. You know, even as a kid in high school, I built radios and fixed television sets, <laughs> which really, which really um, set the tone of uh, my research. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we will come to that a little bit later. And Tom, how was your way into science? Well, it was quite different from Carol's. Uh, <laughs> Carol's was very impressive, his growth. Um, I started off actually not in science. My uh, father, who was not uh, educated, worked his way up from a ditch, ditch digger all the way up to become vice president of a multinational uh, uh, irrigation pump company. And uh, my mom was not educated either, but she was a loan officer for a large bank. My uncles were executives in 
either Coca-Cola or the aerospace industry. So I was a business person uh, coming out of high school. And when I went to college, I just got bored with business. And so <laughs> I, had an, I had this existential crisis for a couple of years trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I accidentally, you know, took some classes in science and found out that not only were they very interesting, but I was a little good at it. And so I decided to continue. And uh, I was really good at math at, at, in those days. And, uh, but I didn't like math as just a subject. I wanted to do something with math. And so in those days, applied math was physics. So I went into physics and then uh, just worked my way up uh, studying cavitation bubbles ever since. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> none of you have started where you are now, so this is maybe a good, good take, home, <laughs> take home here. Uh, but now you're, you're doing business together, and how did you both meet uh, to do this project, which we are going to talk about later on, um, together? So um, after uh, my lab developed a high-throughput microplate uh, matrix chip platform, chromatin became a bottleneck. And um, at about that time, which was nearly 10 years ago, I attended medical ground rounds where the speaker, a gastroenterologist, spoke about HIFO, high intensity focus ultrasound. It was uh, sort of organic to think about using that technology in microplates to shear chromatin. So uh, the, uh, the chromatin shearing would match the the power of a matrix chip. After the talk, I approached the speaker and asked him who is the world expert in <laughs> ultrasound. And he said, right here at the University of Washington, it's Tom Matola. So I contacted Tom about this idea. Uh, everybody thought that um, it was a very tough project, but uh, uh, the gains from uh, achieving that uh, would be high. So it was a high, you know, high risk, high reward. And uh, we worked uh, together to, in uh, Tom's lab to set up a system that demonstrated feasibility of achieving that. And based on uh, preliminary results, we, uh, we uh, were granted actually several grants to uh, develop Pixel And we succeeded in that uh, uh, that challenge. So you also founded a company together, which is called Matchstick. How did you come up with this name, which is not related to ultrasound or <laughs> or the, the biology word? I mean, yeah. So Matchstick is the combination of uh, my last name and Carol's last name. Oh, so yeah. the M A T is the first three letters of my name, and the stick part of uh, bomb stick is attached to it so <laughs> yeah, i really had a hard time to pronouncing the last name of Keres. so now i know how, what it is so yes. com coming more to the science uh, your background tom uh, is as already mentioned you are a trained physicist and uh, before developing the pixel sonic kit you did quite some research on cavitation as you already mentioned um could you briefly explain why cavitation or what cavitation is and how it works? Sure. Um, basically, cavitation is the growth and collapse of bubbles in a liquid. And so when a sound wave passes by a bubble, 
the bubble will grow during the negative half of that uh, sine wave cycle, and then it shrinks during the positive half of that cycle. So that's the general idea <laughs> of a cavitation bubble. It's just it grows and collapses with each acoustic cycle of the sound wave. And at very low amplitude, if you just basically make these bubbles oscillate very gently, uh, that's really good for things like diagnostic imaging. So ultrasound imaging uses ultrasound contrast agents, which are microbubbles, to enhance uh, the diagnostic ultrasound images. And it's a good thing for you. But as mm -hmm. you increase the amplitude, the cavitation bubbles become more violent. At a, a medium amplitude, uh, cavitation is often used for cleaning surfaces or jewelry, things like that. The bubble oscillates, it generates a fluid streaming around it, which allows the, the cleaning chemicals to get closer to the dirt particles to be taken off. And then the bubbles also mechanically can interact directly with the particle until it's dislodged. And then if you keep on increasing the amplitude, the cavitation can become very violent. It can initiate chemical reactions or facilitate them dramatically. It can, you can actually get light emission from a bubble, which is called sonoluminescence which uh, was, uh, took the physics community by storm in the 1990s. Um, and then if a bubble collapses, even against a hardened surface, it could damage that surface and actually cause a pit in it. So uh, for this particular application, chromatin and DNA sharing, the shear stresses generated by these bubbles oscillating is sufficient, has enough energy to rip these molecules apart. Okay, so to go a little bit off topic, <laughs> because it's uh, something that uh, also came up during your, your talk you, you gave to us, um, it's also used or it's also known in the, in the space of submarines and, and torpedoes, right? So <laughs> you, um, is it true that only the cavitation can destroy ships or how is this in, in, uh, used or how is the connection in this area? Well, the way I know it is that uh, these bubbles are, the, the, the torpedoes do more damage if they can blow up underneath a ship and create a big vapor bubble, because okay. then the ship, ship no longer can be held up by that bubble, and it collapses and breaks apart. Whereas if you have a direct impact of the torpedo against the ship, then it you know, causes a lot of damage, but may, may not sink it. Uh, oh, so I think, I yeah, I think that's how that's worked. But, it, <laughs> but actually, cavitation is used in nature. Uh, okay. There's this shrimp called a pistol shrimp that has a big claw, and it makes a lot of noise under the ocean water. And nobody knew why it was making that noise for the longest time until somebody took one of these pistol shrimp out and filmed what they were doing under a high-speed camera. And when a pistol shrimp goes after a small cab, crab, which is its prey, It takes its big claw and it closes it very rapidly and creates, through Bernoulli's uh, law, a vapor bubble. And that vapor bubble collapses and sends out a shock wave that disables its prey <laughs> so that the, sh that the shrimp can just walk over and gobble it up for lunch. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's really smart. <laughs> <laughs> But coming, coming back to, to uh, the epigenetics field, um, Carol, you are a medical doctor. Um, how do you balance your time between the research you're doing and the, your patients that you're also having? Um, I saw it on your website that you're still taking patients. Um, how do you balance that? Yeah, so that's a, you know, a great question and perhaps a formula for other physicians, scientists, and technology developers to consider. I mostly do research and development work. 
but a few uh, uh, weeks a year, I basically leave the lab to work on acute medical hospital wards as an attending physician. And being at the University of Washington hospitals, both the University Hospital and a county hospital, Harborview, you know, we take care of patients that uh, from uh, basic the Pacific Northwest and Alaska regions. You know, we also serve as a tertiary referral center. And I have the opportunity to take care of patients with a very wide uh, range of medical problems. And uh, my uh, research and development work is really based, you know, has been shaped by my previous experience, but I, I, I uh, very appreciative uh, to my patients for guiding me of what are the problems in the real world. Mm -hmm. My uh, patients, they really don't care that much if I publish anything. What they care about is, Doc, have you done anything so I could go home for Christmas? Or, Doc, have, I, have you done anything so I could go home to watch a Seahawks game with my family? So it's really like blockwise work that you're doing. So you're, you're taking time off like four weeks and then you go treat, uh, spend time with your patients. That, that is correct. Yeah. Otherwise, I think it would be very difficult to, yeah. to do. So, so this is the formula that has worked very well for me. Yeah, uh, connecting to to your um, initial point that um, yeah that uh, people ask you what have you done um, to to bring me closer to my goal to spending Christmas at home? Um, how do you think that um, bringing chip and epigenetic essays in general um, have helped in achieving this? Or what are your thoughts on that? Um, right. Yeah, I mean, epigenetic alteration underlie virtually every disease. Uh, so our overall uh, vision is to use these technologies in uh, clinical settings uh, to identify uh, uh, genome-bound enzymes that would serve uh, both uh, first as biomarkers and then eventually as, uh, as drug targets. It is my view, being in the trenches for a long time and having seen just about everything at the bench and at the bedside, I uh, envision that the, these technologies that we and others are developing will have a major impact on precision medicine because of the fact that epigenetic alterations underlie virtually every disease. Uh, and um, and uh, uh, will in uh, that uh, and epigenetic processes are pharmacologically reversible. So I, I believe that there is uh, great hope that these uh, one day these technologies will revolutionize how we treat patients, particularly uh, uh, patients uh, uh, that uh, have cancer. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a big field. But how did you get into doing chip? I mean, um, you st I saw that you have uh, quite a record of, of of chip publications. But how did you start out, or how did you come across chip? Right. Uh, so once I started uh, uh, research, I um, became very interested in uh, cell signaling as a former gadget and TV repairman. 
uh, this was, uh, I view signal transduction uh, pathways just like a television set where uh, uh, that consists of two genes. One gene is the TV screen and the other gene is the speaker. Mm -hmm. So when I was a TV uh, repairman and and the TV was broken, the way that you repair a television set, you start from the speaker or the screen and you trace the the problem in the retrograde fashion towards the antenna. Because by doing so, you know you're always on the same track. In the early years of signal transduction pathway, people were preoccupied with events at the plasma membrane. We took a very different approach uh, that based on how I was fixing television is to start with the nucleus, identifying what are the events in the nucleus that perhaps are altered in Mm. disease and then tracing it back. So in that regard, about um, 30 years ago, we developed a DNA affinity uh, purification column to identify uh, inducible phosphoproteins in the nucleus. And with that approach, we, I, uh, we purified and cloned heterogeneous nuclear ribonuclear protein K or HNRMPK. And this turned out to be a really fascinating uh, uh, protein because was un- uh, there, at that time, it was unusual to to work with a protein that is everywhere and does everything. And back those to biologists, this wasn't particularly that interesting because how could you have a protein that does so many things? But as a gadget person, K-protein looked to me like a transistor that when you open a television set, the transistor is everywhere. It doesn't mean that it doesn't do anything. In fact, it means that it does a lot. It's like a com- it's like a computer chip. So, so then then uh, uh, what uh, we wanted to do is identify uh, K protein partners. So we used the East two hybrid screen, and uh, uh, and using K protein as a bait, and we are one of the first laboratories to clone uh, the murin E D protein and then enhancer of zesty. At that time, a key polycom uh, chromatin and epigenetic players. At that time, we had, you know, we only knew about the Drosophila ortholog. We didn't know that ED, an enhancer of Zesty, would then become the queen and and the the king of uh, pluripotency. And and also at that time, uh, we identified that at least enhanced of zesty is very act, you know, interacts with RNA. So that uh, that sort of was the uh, way that we got involved in in chromatin and uh, uh, and uh, yeah. epigenetics. And um, because uh, this protein was so uh, you know had so many functions that it became apparent that the intracellular processes are no match to the existing technologies. Uh, When we first did chip assays for K-protein some 20 years ago, it it would take us three days and six samples plus. We were exposed to 
uh, phenol and chloroform. And, you know, the poor graduate student, he was a very <laughs> tall fellow under the hood. And uh, the, uh, <laughs> the posture was so bad. And I said, this is, it couldn't be like that. We have to come up with a better method. I found a paper in some marine biology uh, uh, journal where they use this resin Kelex to extract uh, a DNA from some scale. So I, I said to the folks in the lab, if they can extract DNA uh, with this Kelex from, from scales, we should be able to uh, use that in a chip assay. And long behold, within half a year, we develop uh, fast chip, which basically yep. allow you to do a chip assay in one day no noxious substances, and I believe to this day, FastChip may be one of the most popular uh, chip protocols. Yep. So then, uh, so then that was great. We could do twenty-four chips in in you know one day, but again, recognizing the complexity of these processes, we thought that this is not enough, and we decided to develop a microplate-based chip assay, and we had uh, all kinds of elaborate schemes, but eventually we came back, came up with a, a very simple uh, method, which uh, is uh, very reproducible, is routinely done by undergraduates, and myself, there were times where I would do 240 chips per day. And That's the important thing is that the important thing, the matrix chip, and as a pixel, is the kind of a method you, you uh, see one, uh, you uh, do one and you teach one. And these methods are incredibly reproducible. There are some years, because we're very interested in disease, where we would do tens of thousands of chip qPCR uh, uh, experiments or chips uh, per day. So these uh, methods are uh, very powerful. So that's uh, how we uh, came, uh, uh, you know, that's, that was the sort of a path and the reason to uh, to develop these analytical platforms, so we could study um, at gene at disease-related genes, uh, epigenetic and transcriptional processes in great details, so that we can identify potential drug targets. Yeah. And go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead uh, to finish your sentence. And sure. So with matrix chip, what we uh, uh, have been able to do is, is demonstrate that the canonical, um, canonical uh, signal transduction pathways are recapitulated at the genes. So for example, the, the entire MAP kinase cascade is recapitulated um, at uh, uh, inducible genes such as EGR1, including including protein tyrosine uh, kinase receptors that in a canonical fashion are residing in uh, the plasma membrane. So we were the first ones almost 10 years ago to show that insulin receptor is recruited to insulin responsive genes. And in mouse models of diabetes, that whole system is altered, which may account for insulin resistance. And uh, subsequently, we also show that EGFR uh, is uh, recruited to, to genes, and others have shown as well. 
And it was last year that there was a paper published in Cell that uh, uh, confirmed that insulin receptor uh, is recruited to inducible genes. Uh, they did a genome-wide study and identified multiple, you know, whole, a whole set of genes that uh, that uh, insulin receptor regulates right at the site of transcription. So yeah, that that's a very interesting path for you. And now we know that you developed the matrix chip method so that you have chip in a 96 well plate, plate and that Tom um, is the expert on ultrasound shearing. So it seems natural that you both uh, <laughs> somehow <coughs> found, found together and, and uh, um, worked together. Uh, yeah. How does now yeah. chromatin shearing uh, via ultrasound work in this setting when you use a 96 well plate or yeah, coming from a general point of view and then in the 96 well plate? Sure, I could start with yeah. uh, answering that one. Um, yeah, in fact, when Carol first came to me, he had this uh, matrix chip system, but he said he was spending too much time in the upstream sample preparation part, and it wasn't helping him run through these studies fast enough. So he wanted to help improve the workflow, and that's how we got together and started developing Pixel. But uh, to get to, to that point, we had to figure out um, how to break down chromatin and how to share it with ultrasound. And since this wasn't my field, we started from very basic principles using transducers that we had in the lab and shooting uh, the sound waves into some sample vials and just getting general uh, data with Carol for some time until we kind of figured out how how best to optimize it. So when you use bubbles to break down chromatin, for example, those bubbles cause uh, oscillate and that shear stress causes the, uh, the molecules to fragment. However, not all bubbles are created equally. Some bubbles are very big. I call them marshmallows. <laughs> They don't really collapse and cause shear stresses. They actually block the ultrasound from getting past them into the rest of the sample. And so the idea is to optimize the right kind of cavitation bubbles. Uh, and that's kind of what we did uh, as much as possible using frequency, pulse parameters, uh, and uh, things like that to, uh, to shear the chromatin. But in general, it's just the oscillation of a bubble causing shear stresses that uh, breaks it up. Uh, but what kind of vision did you then have when you designed the pixel? Was it to really be able to have individual settings for each well, or, or how did you approach this then? So uh, what uh, you know that was, uh, uh, of course, the idea to uh, you know to develop pixel, and uh, but primarily what we wanted to have is an instrument that would match the high throughput power of a matrix chip, allowing us to interrogate transcription epigenetic processes in many, many samples at a time, uh, particularly from animal models of disease and uh, clinical biospecimen with the ultimate uh, goal to bring this technology to the bedside. And uh, as Tom knows, uh, before Pixel, and when we had sometimes valuable uh, clinical biospecimens that uh, 
uh, we valued very much. So I used to myself come to the lab on the weekends to prepare the chromatin samples because I wanted peace and quiet. <laughs> and uh, and I can tell you, this is no way uh, to spend a weekend or make a living. And uh, what Pixel uh, has allowed us to do is what used to take us a day, which is basically reduce it to you know uh, one hour. The the other important dividends, uh, and there are many of of Pixel, is there are no tubes involved. And when I was preparing the samples myself, I, I most disliked label, labeling little tubes. My handwriting is not very good. It was very laborious. Yep. <laughs> Moreover, now that we have pixel, the sample, chromatin samples are stored in microplates, which really saves the room in the deep freezer. In the past, because things uh, chromatin was in tubes, took up a lot of space. And, and, and the chromatin samples were so difficult to prepare that we always held down to these tubes. But with Pixel and microplates, you know, we were able to dispose of these tubes because it saved us, uh, you know, the safe room. So this is just sort of the uh, basic uh, somebody at the bench and, uh, and appreciating uh, what a huge difference Pixel has made uh, for their end user, somebody that actually does the hard, does the hard work. And you can even grow your, your cells in, in the 96 well plate that you use for shearing then. That is correct. So uh, we also do, of course, uh, uh, experiments in cultured cells. Uh, so it became a very quickly apparent to us. So, so we said, gee, let's grow cells in 96 well plates and put, do the cross-linking and just put that culture plate directly into the pixel and it worked. So uh, no longer one needs to transfer the cells into test tubes. You can use the same culture plate uh, that uh, in culture and then just put it uh, directly in pixel. So what that allows one to do, we have a plate, culture plate of, uh, of, of uh, cells, of culture cells in the morning. And by the time I uh, go home, I, uh, uh, we have a chip QPCR, QPCR results on every, uh, on every well. And, uh, and to do that, we also develop our own software where one just basically, you know, for a matrix chip, that one hits few buttons and the graphs are plotted with statistics. So it's 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 really very fast. That sounds sounds pretty awesome. But coming back to Tom, um, so the Pixel acronym stands for Pixelated Ultrasound. Am I right? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, but it's really not. So up until now, it's not possible to assign one sonication. Of, uh, setting to each and every well, right? So you you really have to you have one setting per column, uh, not per per well, right? Why Correct. is that? Yeah. Why is that uh, currently? So Pixel, the name we we came up with, we came up with at the very beginning of our collaboration, and that was the goal was to have one transducer under each and every well of a microplate, so that you could do either ninety six 
duplicate experiments or 96 separate experiments in one system at the same time. Um, but during the engineering of the system, you know, the physics said that that's just not a good way to do it. It's much easier and more, uh, uh, you know, better for the transducers if you could do it a little bit differently. And so we had ended up doing a column at a time. Um, that's not necessarily the limitation of Pixel, but it's how we're starting uh, with the unit to make it easy so that each column is, has its own parameters that you can apply. So you can do 12 separate experiments if you want to, or 12 replicate experiments. Um, and we plan to have new versions of Pixel in the future, which will sub so re reduce that to even smaller sets, but probably not go to maybe eventually, but I'm not sure if we can actually go to one transducer under each and every well. So what, what we saw is that you have one transducer <clears throat> under four wells, right? So you have one transducer yeah. under four wells and then you somehow make physics. <laughs> Could you explain <laughs> how this works? <laughs> well, so yeah, so we have uh, an array of transducers under that, that generate the sound waves. And each one of those transducers occupies more than uh, more space than one well. Um, but what we have above that transducer is a system of lenses so that the lenses focus the ultrasound directly into each well so that um, each well receives the same amount of energy, same amount of cavitation, and therefore shears consistently every well. So that's kind of how we do it. Okay. And what is now the, the big difference of the pixel compared to other probe or water bus syndicators? Yes, yeah, so there are uh, several uh, differences. And um, the main one, as we already talked about, is, is the high throughput that uh, matches uh, uh, platforms, analytical platforms such as, uh, uh, you know, such as matrix chip. You know, pixel can also be used for transcriptomics, proteomics, probably for other um, omic uh, applications. <clears throat> the, as we showed in our nucleic acid research paper, the, that uh, pixel is is uh, is highly reproducible. It's uh, very easy uh, to use, very uh, easy to learn how to use. We have uh, several. Uh, researchers in our research campus that routinely use Pixel not just for epigenetics but also for proteomics. And uh, as we already discussed before, uh, that uh, one can uh, don't one does not have to uh, transfer uh, cells from culture plate. We've done that for different uh, cell types, including embryonic stem cells, which. Uh, Uh, avoiding uh, the transfer allows you to use uh, fewer cells and uh, also uh, allows to obtain uh, uh, better, uh, uh, better results. And uh, uh, as I mentioned already before, uh, although it might appear trivial, but not dealing with test tubes is, uh, is a lot of help in terms of uh, Uh, even the mere ability to store, uh, you know, to store uh, the, the plates. Moreover, the, uh, the setting time 
is, is pretty short compared to other instruments. Uh, there are instruments that we use in the past where we actually have to let the core facility know a day ahead uh, to uh, set up that instrument for microplate uh, shearing. In, with Pixel, it's a matter of minutes, 10, 15 minutes to cool the system down and it's ready to go. Moreover, there is no, uh, no degassing is needed and there are no issues with uh, growth of algae. That's perfect. I mean, the paper you also tested, because you, you now uh, said that you did a lot of ChipQ PCR, uh, but in the paper you also tested the Pixel on a ChipSeq experiments. Um, um, what were the settings here and how did it perform in, in this uh, experiment? Yes, so um, we uh, uh, grew cells in uh, uh, 96 well plates to about density of 200,000 cells per well in a 96-well plate. And we uh, used uh, the standard uh, setting for Pixel, uh, just like for uh, other applications. Uh, and uh, uh, the total time was uh, shearing was six minutes per well. Uh, and um, uh, once the chromatin was generated, we used active motif low cell uh, chip C kit uh, to prepare a sequencing library. And the libraries were sequenced on next seq uh, 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 500. And uh, we've, uh, we uh, uh, used uh, several antibodies and, uh, in the chip assay, several uh, uh, antibodies to histone marks as well as CTCF. And then we compared the results to ENCODE and the comparison was uh, uh, very favorable uh, for all the antibodies and in uh, particular was exciting to us because we use 200,000 cells per chip and ENCODE typically is an order of magnitude, uh, uh, larger number of cells that were used. Yeah, this is also the advantage of, of not having to switch tubes, right? So this is, uh, you can do it all in the same tubes and this really helps to avoid sample loss and then you will be able to use a less amount of cells in the end. That is uh, absolutely correct. It's, it's it, uh, you know, the workflow is uh, just, uh, uh, you know, so much simpler. Uh, I, uh, how, how low do you think you can go with, with the chip then? Uh, is it... Like 50,000 cells, 1,000 cells, how low, low can you go? Mm -hmm. So that's an excellent question. Uh, I think for, you know, for uh, chip qPCR, you know, we, uh, for histone marks, we can easily go to 500 or 1,000 cells. For when we're looking at uh, genome-bound enzymes, of course, we need to use more cells. Uh, we have not... Uh, Tested the limits, uh, the lower limits of number of cells uh, for chip seek uh, with uh, Pixel, but I suspect that uh, as time goes on, that uh, one could go lower uh, than two hundred thousand cells for a histone mark, perhaps you know fifty thousand or even uh, ten thousand. So I, I believe that that is feasible for you know, for a chip seek. Having that in mind, what do you think that 
could be things that scientists will be able to do now with the pixel that they weren't able to do previously. So, uh, so first of all, that uh, uh, you, most of epigenetic studies uh, are focused on uh, uh, chromatin modifications, both histone modifications and and uh, DNA modifications. With uh, these technologies, uh, one uh, is able to interrogate what are the enzymes and their interactions that account for the epigenetic changes. Because from a clinical point of view, knowing what the modification is may be helpful as a biomarker, but it's not perhaps as helpful as knowing what the enzymes that are bound to these sites that account for these modifications, which in turn regulate uh, gene expression. So. Uh, in my view, uh, that is, uh, you know, the big advantage of these platforms. And moreover, when it comes to a disease, we don't need to know what's going on across the entire genome. For example, for cancer, if we know just a handful of uh, genes that the cancer cannot live without and looking in great details, uh, sort of in a vertical sense, what are the interactions, what are the enzymes, that that would provide an avenue to identify drug targets and perhaps using drugs uh, synergistically to minimize off-target effects and at the same time allow those reductions. And this is also um, important because in the clinical setting, you might not have like millions of cells or milligrams of tissue, but you really might end up with small amount of samples. Absolutely. And uh, because, you know, you can have uh, uh, liquid samples and liquid samples usually are, you know, have uh, far fewer cells. And then, of course, tissues. It's also very important to appreciate the fact that in a traditional uh, way, uh, when uh, biopsies are done, one does one biopsy and bases a, a clinical um, approach based on one biopsy. However, it is now very well appreciated, particularly in cancer, that tumors are very heterogeneous. So simply getting one sample is not sufficient to identify what is going on. So in the future, we will see this, I believe, as a, a standard practice that each tumor will be sampled multiple times. And the, uh, the pixel uh, and pixel chip is very well suited to be able to, uh, to interrogate uh, these tissues, uh, these tumors in, in multiple sites and arrive at a better way to, uh, to design a, 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 a ra rational drug treatments. So this is, I believe, a very important advantage of Pixel. So I have run out of my questions. Uh, did we touch everything or do you have something to add? No, I'm, I'm good.
I hear shaking heads, okay. <laughs> so then, thank you, Carol and Tom, for your time. It was a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Stefan. Thank you very much, Stefan. If you now want to know more about Pixel, you can go to activemotif.com slash pixel. Thank you for listening to this special episode of our podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. We will read all your reviews and comments and give you a shout-out in a future episode. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast.activemotif.com. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog, motivations at activemotif.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned. <laughs>